If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew 13, we are concluding our look at the kingdom parables, and I believe we'll be in chapter 18, Lord willing, next week. But for now, Matthew 13, we've looked at each and every one of these parables, and we want to look at the final two that we have in our text here this morning. Matthew 13 is page 863 of your pew Bibles. And with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence for God's Word. Now, if you looked it up in the bulletin, it's in Matthew 11. That is my fault. Uh, I mistyped in the email sent to Annette. Your bulletin is not the inspired Word of God. It's the inspired Word of man, right? No, no. All right. Matthew 13, we will start in verse 47. The evangelist Matthew writes under the inspiration and errancy of the Word of God. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And it was full, when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So we will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. He said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure, what is new and what is owed. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, asks you will, as always, open our hearts. We would receive your word, our mind that we would understand it, our eyes that we would see your glory, our ears that we would hear and heed your gospel. In our mouths, we'd speak the truth of the hope that is within us, our hands and our feet that we will go in obedience to Jesus. Lord, may your spirit come. May we be transformed. May I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your Son, we pray. Amen. You may be seated. It was a little over 12 years ago that uh, I got to watch at 8 o'clock on, uh, uh, that evening, got to watch the University of Louisville play football. But on this occasion, was a little uh, better than all the other times I'd watched the same team play. And that is, this time I had, I had an extra... A uh, person to watch with me, uh, a 12-hour-old son, right? And I was ready for it. I was wearing my Brian Brom L jersey, and he was wearing a matching Brian Brom L jersey. The difference is, is I could fit in mine. The smallest jersey we could find was a 12-month jersey, and what we had was a 12-hour, a 12-hour baby, right? It was a little big. But I don't care. I sat there, held them. We both matched and looked good. But I kind of—I tell you what no one ever said. No nurse, no doctor, no visitor. No one said when they came in the saw that side of he and I sitting right there. No one looked at us and said, oh, I didn't know you played quarterback for the University of Louisville. Can I tell you why? Because wearing the jersey doesn't automatically make you part of the team. In fact, the reason maybe your closet, like mine, has several jerseys of your favorite teams or your favorite players or a t-shirt that has their number or something like that is because we are associating ourselves with a team or a player or, or something else like that. But simply wearing the jersey doesn't mean you're actually on the team. So to looking the part, sometimes acting the part or playing the part doesn't actually make you the part. It's certainly true when it comes to the gospel of Christ and the kingdom of God. Simply going through the motions and making sure that everything looks just right isn't sufficient for salvation. 
You'll notice what we have here, particularly in this last parable, the, the, the second half of the passage is more of an illustration, but we'll look at it here in a second. But in this last parable, what we have from Jesus is a final caution. And this is the first of these final two uh, parables or illustrations. And, and this, this first one is about fishing. All the other ones have predominantly been about agriculture. And I grew up in a redneck town, I get it, but, but I'm not much of a farmer. Fishing is something I, I, I can get. I can get my head around fishing. I enjoy fishing, don't do it nearly as much as I would like, uh, but, but I do enjoy fishing. The parable is given in verse 47 and 48. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. Pretty straightforward, isn't it? What he's describing here is a dragnet. Maybe your translation says dragnet. And, and it's, it's a net that requires two boats to hold. It's very large. It would go into the water, and you pull up everything it, it catches. This was commonly used. It, you could catch more fish in a short amount of time than using the old bait and hook, right? Or even a, a smaller net. Earlier in Matthew, when you see the disciples casting the net, they, they probably weren't using a dragnet. They were probably using a smaller net. But nevertheless, you see that they, they, you cast this net out, you pull up the net up, and what do you get? All kinds of fish. Jesus says you, that you get every kind of fish. Again, don't take that too literal. That doesn't mean there was a swordfish in there, okay, or some shark, right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying is, is that in the Sea of Galilee, there was about 12 dozen uh, or 12 is a dozen, uh, there were about two dozen species of fish in the Sea of Galilee. Now, according to Jewish law, you can eat and consume some, but you can't others. Some are clean, some are unclean. And so you see in the parable that those that can be sold in the market and, and eaten, they keep, they put in containers. The others were destroyed and, and cast out. And the purpose is then given in verse 49 to 50. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come, uh, will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them to the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So we return to an application and interpretation of the parable. We've not had these for a few weeks. So immediately, perhaps your mind thinks, you know, this parable, though different, it sounds familiar. It seems like a few weeks ago, we saw a parable that looked a lot like this, and we did. It's the parable of the wheat's and the weeds, or you may know it as the wheat and tares. The wheat and the darnel is the technical uh, uh, plant there. And that, of course, is an eschatological parable. That is a parable about the end of times. Remember that, that a, a farmer went out, sowed some wheat, and it grew, but, but while he was asleep, his enemy came and sowed some weeds. And, and the, the helpers came and said, do you want us to pull out the weeds so you can just have the wheat? And the farmer says, the problem is you can't really tell the difference until harvest. At harvest time, then we will pull the wheat and, and, and keep them. The rest will be thrown into the fire. So you see the similarities between the wheat and weeds and the fish over here, right? The difference is, is that in the wheat and weeds, the emphasis is on, uh, the, if, if you will, the age of the church. That is the time between the first and the second coming of Christ, where you will have people who look alike, a lot alike, they talk the same language, and they play the part. Some are righteous, some are unrighteous. Here, the difference is that the emphasis is on the very end, the day of judgment. Thus, this parable is primarily about God's judgment and wrath on the day of judgment. This is a final warning to Jesus' hearers. So to Jesus, he, he sees that there are two people in the world throughout history. There are the redeemed and there is the rebel. The citizens of the kingdom 
who have forsaken all for the treasure of the gospel, to remember what we saw last week, will inherit the glorious kingdom and dwell with its king. That's the good news of the, of, of the kingdom, isn't it? That, that we have inherited a kingdom. The kingdom is here and now. At the same time, we wait for the kingdom that is then and there. However, there are those who remain stubborn in their rebellion against God. Some are open in their rebellion. Some are hidden in their rebellion. And Jesus here warns that what awaits them, he says, is a furnace of fire and weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now that phrase, the weeping and gnashing of teeth, is one we might be familiar with. But, but can, can we look at what it means by the gnashing of teeth a little bit? There are basically two times that you and I, we gnash our teeth. The first is obvious, and that is pain. You break a bone, you fall off your bike, uh, your basketball team uh, won't even make it to the NIT, right? And you're in a lot of pain, so you start gnashing your teeth, right? We understand that. I made the last one up. That would never happen in Lexington. The other reason is anger. We gnash our teeth when we are angry. Have you ever gotten to the point where someone made you so mad, you just, you, you tighten your fist and you gritted your teeth. You start gnashing your teeth in, in anger. The reason those two are important is because I believe both are play in judgment. There is the suffering aspect where we speak of an eternal fire. That is true and that is real. And then there is suffering there. There is also the unrepented anger that is there of judgment. Throughout the Bible, we see that judgment doesn't lead to repentance often. It leads to deeper rebellion. A good text in this regard actually would be Romans 1, a, a passage that probably describes our very nation, where God hands us over to our base desires and instincts. And so in judgment, we hate God more. We don't regret that we hated God before. So too, I believe that in eternal judgment, there isn't this, this regret of how we lived our lives, but a, a deep-seated pain, suffering, and anger at God himself. That's when you, when, when you really look at this chapter to our surprise. This is something that sticks out to me when I was looking at this text is how much of these parables are a warning to us. That is to say, don't think that you're on the team simply because you're wearing the jersey. Think about it. The rocky soil sure did have a nice new jersey. The thorny soil sure did have a nice new jersey. The weeds sure did look good out there in the field, didn't it? But all of them were destroyed. The warning from Jesus is real. Remember that Jesus is not talking to Gentile pagans here. He is speaking to church-going, conservative, religious people. How many people do you think will not be brought into the kingdom of God despite how well they dressed on a Sunday morning? Mere appearance and ritual are not sufficient for salvation any more than wearing a jersey makes you a member of the team. Salvation is more than mere fire insurance. Redemption revolves surrender, commitment, and obedience. And making that commitment is far, is, is far better than pretending. One of the things I've, I've shared with this before, I actually mentioned it earlier today, that whenever I was a professor at a, a small school, I would travel around the state and I would teach on various subjects of Christianity and the Bible and stuff. And virtually all the students were de-churched. None of them went to church anymore. Hardly any of them did. But all of them had a church story. 
They were de-churched. They had gone to vacation Bible school, and they remember Sunday school. They had a sweet teacher they really liked. But then something happened. Someone got their feelings hurt, or they, they, they made a choice, and they felt outcast and all. You know, you know those stories. But if you were to go up to each and every one of those students, much as you can go up to almost each and every one of our neighbors here in the Bible Belt and ask, what is your faith? And they would say, oh, well, I'm a Christian. Oh, I'm a member of this church. Oh, I go over here or there. What are they describing? I've got the jersey. I've paid my dues. Clearly, I'm on the team. Perhaps even here this morning, there's some of us who we think, yeah, but my jersey is new. I paid a lot of money for this. I've gone through a, a lot of work just to do this. Surely, I'm on the team. But that commitment of grace, that commitment of salvation is far more than just pretending. Jesus offers to us assurance, grace, peace, and joy. Far more than just playing the part. Therefore, this parable needs to be a warning to each and every one of us. Have you here this morning embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are you right now Rebelling against Jesus, will you not repent? But you'll notice that, that although I would take that as a parable, but what you get in verse 51 to, to 52 is more of an illustration, but it's parabolic nonetheless. And, and it leads to this final illustration. I do believe that both of these are a good summary of everything that, that we've seen. Notice the question Jesus has there right from the beginning, verse 51. Have you understood all of these things? Do you understand what it is I'm communicating, Jesus asked the disciples. Do you get it? Do you get it? And this is a great question that Matthew the writer is asking, not just the disciples through Jesus' mouth, but he's asking his readers, having gone through all these kingdom parables, do you understand these things? Jesus is inviting us to explore the beauty and the depth of the kingdom of God. Do you understand these things? It isn't sufficient merely to have an intellectual understanding of this. Do you know intimately the way of the kingdom and the will of its king? And to illustrate his point, of course, the disciples who are um, pubescent boys, right? They're teenage boys. And they, of course, understand everything, right? I'm glad you adult men were never like that. So, so they understand everything, right? Uh, of course, Jesus, we got this. And if we have any questions, we'll ask Google. It's okay, right? We got this. And so Jesus gives a final illustration. And, and what I think we have here is he has a broad metaphor. He, he describes and describes. But then he, he mixes metaphors in it. I think that's where a lot of confusion is. I looked back at some old notes of mine. I, I taught in this passage before. And, and I think I got this all wrong last time. Just don't tell those people. Um, but, but, but so what you have is a mixing of metaphors. You have a broad metaphor at this point. And to illustrate the illustration, he gives, he gives the second one. Okay? So, so the main one is a scribe. Jesus says there in verse 52, therefore, every scribe of the kingdom. So that, that's, that's the general uh, metaphor is he's saying that if you're a disciple, you are a scribe. And notice he, 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 descri he describes the scribes, say that twice, um, in two ways. One, they are trained. Every scribe is trained in the ways of the kingdom. Well, this is what we would, uh, Christianese would call a disciple, 
right? A disciple is a fancy word in the Greek, which means learner, which I love it when we can use learner publicly um, being from the country uh, because I was always told by my mama that uh, you don't learn. You don't, you know, I learned something. You don't use it in that context. Well, the Bible says a disciple is a learner. So I kind of like, like using that term. Anyways, a, a trained disciple, one who is, who is growing in the faith. Now, remember at this time, you didn't go off to college in, in your degree. What you did was you attached yourself as a disciple to a rabbi. And, and you would spend years under the leadership of that rabbi. You would learn from them and, and study them and everything. And then when you would become the scribe, when you become the rabbi, you would have disciples under you. Right? This, is, this is the pattern that we see throughout the first century Jewish world. So Jesus says that, that we are to be like a trained scribe, which means we are growing. So we're not merely entering the kingdom of God. We are growing in the ways of the kingdom. We're growing in the will of the king. We are being trained right now as disciples. But you also notice not only does he describe them as trained, he describes them as treasured. So again, he says, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out his treasure what is new and what is old. You see the next metaphor. Now, this metaphor is used there to, to help us understand the, the broad illustration, right? So he talks about the head of the household. Now, among other things, the head of the household is in charge of taking care of his guests. And remember, this is a very hospitable time where hospitality was the number one thing. You had to be a, a hospitable person. So you would have traveling rabbis and family members and friends, and then you would give them a place to lodge. Then you can think about it. If, if someone were to invite me to go speak somewhere, right, and it was in, uh, I don't know, uh, Montana, I don't know, pick a place, um, and uh, um, I would go and they would say, we will put you in a hotel, right? That's hospitality to us. And what they're basically saying is, we don't want to have to put up with you. We want to pay someone to put up with you, right? That's the way we roll today. And we all love this system, right? Back then, you didn't do it that way. If you were traveling around and you're of the tribe of, of Dan, and, and, and here is someone in that community from the same tribe, you would reach out to them and say, hey, I'm just traveling through. Can I stay the night? Well, as the head of the household, you would have the responsibility to give them lodging and food and to make them your, your guest of honor. Now, we don't work that system anymore, but I will tell you what we do is I bet when you were a kid, you came to dinner and you didn't recognize that table. You sat there at the table. Sure, you had guests over and friends and, and whatever it might be, but you were looking down and you're thinking, hey, mom, when do we ever get these here fancy plates? Can I eat from them? Right. You know, I don't want to get them dirty. I'll get in trouble. Right. And, and your, your mother's embarrassed. Uh, slightly, right? Uh, because you, you've called her out. This is the way I did it, right? My brother and I are like, why are we eating from fancy dishes? We know these people. They can eat off paper plates. We'll get along just fine, right? But why do you do that? We understand that when you have a special guest over, you're going to bring out, if you will, old and new treasures. Chances are each of us, each home probably has those dishes that maybe they've been handed down or maybe they're a wedding gift or something like that. They, they, they have a special place of honor. You'll give your kids the plastic cups. You ain't going to give it to the special guest, right? Because you love your special guest more than your kids. That's why, right? We all, we all understand that. But here you'll notice the head of the household brings out both old and new treasures. And we understand this, right? Ladies, let me ask you, which would you rather have? Which do you value more? 
your nice wedding ring and the story behind how you got it and how you met your man, or that nice ring you got from your grandmother you inherited from her. Which one do you value more? Men, which one would you value more? Having your, 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 your garage, that, that classic car, for me, be a 1972 Chevy Nova. I'll go with a 1972, 71 Chevelle, too. I'm not going to be too picky. All right, that's, that's, you know, maybe you have that classic car, whatever it is. Or would you want that, if I were to rule area, it would be this, that brand spanking new diesel trunk engine with all the bells and whistles, right? Which one do you want? Which one do you treasure more? The answer is both. Both. You want the old ring because there's something there that's of great value that is irreplaceable. You want the newer ring because there's something there that is valuable and irreplaceable. And that new will become old, but it's treasure nonetheless. You want the classic car to show off to the, to the boys when you go out to breakfast on Saturday morning, right? And you want the brand new car to show the boss and say, hey, this is you. You gave me that raise. Look at this lady, right? You know, you want to do that. You want to do that. They're both treasured. So too, the scribe, like the head of the household, is not only trained in the ways of the gospel, he's been treasured with the ways of the gospel. And we need to see the difference here. Knowing the gospel is good, being trained in the gospel is good, but what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do with it? If you've been treasured with the riches of grace, do you not have enough to spare? Have you not been given enough to share? Knowing the gospel is good, but sharing the gospel is better. You see, the kingdom of God is not a secret club. It's not the way of the disciple. The kingdom of God is something that is given. It is something that is shared. You see, disciples of Jesus should be well-trained in areas of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, should be trained in the ways of rest and assurance and salvation and grace and redemption and justification and hope and, 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 and the hope we have in heaven. We should be trained in all of these things. But given how broken our world is, wouldn't it be nice if we shared these treasures, old and new, Maybe there are some treasures here that you've had for a long time. You picked up early on in your training and you're thinking, man, I could share this. Maybe this week, maybe this year, maybe these last two years, you're thinking, I've grown in ways of the gospel. I've grown in new treasures, whether it's old or whether it's new. It is to be given because we've been given much in abundance. We are like a trained scribe that is truly treasured. In other words, Jesus is telling his disciples, if you truly understand the treasures of the kingdom, go and tell people about this treasure. Go and tell people about this treasure. So what is the moral of the story? That's the question we've been asked with each of these parables. I want to highlight just two things ever so briefly. You may even get out early. Doubt it, but you might. Got out early Wednesday. Get out early this morning. Do not get used to that. Number one, the gospel is priceless. The gospel is priceless. We saw this particularly last week, didn't we? A man who found buried treasure in the field, sold everything he had to buy that field so he can just have the treasure. A treasure was worth far more than anything he ever had or possessed. A man is like a merchant who's looking for that priceless pearl and he finds it, sells everything he has 
for that one thing, so too the gospel is priceless. But to possess that will come at a great cost. To gain everything, you must lose everything. But in losing everything, you discover you've lost nothing because you have Christ. In so doing, you are rich. So here in these, in these final parables and in the summary parable that points us back to all, let, let us not forget that what you have in Christ is enough. What you have in Jesus is sufficient for you. You need nothing else. The gospel is priceless. However, secondly, we need to see here that the gospel is costly. To reject the kingdom of God is to possess nothing that will cost you everything. Jesus both encourages and warns us with these parables. To the true disciple, planted in good soil, will grow and bear fruit to the time of harvest. And what an encouragement that is. Doesn't matter the weather, doesn't matter the times, doesn't matter the culture, doesn't matter the politics. To be planted in the field, good soil, you will grow and produce fruit to the day of harvest, to the day of judgment. Be encouraged with this. Your priority should not be who is running the country, but are you growing in the faith? However, at the same time, he warns us that the false disciple, the rebel, will rot and die and then, then will be thrown into the fire. Be encouraged, dear believer. Be warned, dear rebel. The gospel is costly. It will either cost the blood of Jesus on your behalf, or it will cost your very soul, one or the other. And see, it isn't enough to be a member. It isn't enough to speak Christianese. It isn't enough to be baptized. You know, one of the things about playing sports all my life and now coaching, you know, with, with the kids is there always seemed to be that one player. There's always that one guy. It just, he was content with merely being on the team. You know what I'm talking about? Like, like, like they didn't try hard in practice. They weren't doing all they could to get on the field. They were okay. They weren't in the starting lineup. They didn't care if they were at the end of the bench. They didn't care. They just wanted to be on the team. In fact, one of the teams I coached, I don't have a lot of tolerance for this sort of nonsense. It's, it's, I had one player, right? And at, at rec levels, you know, across the board, you want each player to play at least half the game, right? That's fair. It's what we want. Good. And I had one player. I was about to put him in the second half. And he was kind of a whiny kid. But he says, I want to go in. I want to go home and play my PlayStation or Xbox, whatever it is. I said, okay, sit on the bench for the rest of the game. I ain't got time for you. I'll put the person next to you in, into your position. I'm done with you. I don't have a lot of patience. You need to work with me on that. It sounds like a lot of Christians I meet. We spend a lot of times in our comfortable pews, safety of our homes, and in the, in the circle of our tribe. We'll complain a lot about the culture. We'll complain a lot about the ways of the state, in the nation, in our lives. We make a lot of promises. We talk the good talk. We'll say we'll fight the good fight. At the end of the day, we don't want to go out in the field. Then our jersey might get wrinkled. Our uniform might get dirty. And we might find that on the field it's a bit difficult, isn't it? 
Let me ask you, are, are you just a jersey-wearing Christian? Trained as a scribe? Treasured with things Odin knew? What are you going to do about it? Let's pray.